Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. I love this question. What's the deal with animals? <laughs> what do I think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals, for one, I think is off. they're awesome. So what do you think is the deal with animals? Hello again, listeners. This is Marika Bell, and this is part three of the mini-series for the Aggression and Dogs Conference. As this episode releases, the conference will be starting in just a couple of hours. I'm very excited to hear the upcoming speakers this weekend and talk with some of them after the conference so I can ask a few more questions about their topic and also hear their takeaways from the conference and the other speakers. What surprised them? What did they agree with? And what did they maybe disagree with? We'll find out as we wrap up the mini-series next week. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Laura Monaco Torelli, CPDT-KA. Laura is the founder of Animal Behavior Training Concepts in Chicago, Illinois. She began her career in 1991 at Chicago's Shedd Aquarium, where she trained beluga whales, dolphins, sea otters, seals, river otters, and penguins. Laura serves as a faculty instructor with the Karen Pryor Academy for Animal Training and Behavior, and as a teaching assistant for Dr. Susan G. Friedman's Living and Learning with Animals online course. She offers private training at West Loop Veterinary Care, located in downtown Chicago. She'll be speaking on day three of the conference. Her talk is titled, The Great Expectations of Cooperative Care, Unravel the Who, Where, What, When, and Why of Husbandry Behaviors. I had a great time talking with Laura, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well as her fantastic wealth of knowledge and experience. One thing I'm sorry to say is the room I had to record this episode in was a little bit echoey. We have a house we're fixing up in Ocean Shores, and that room just doesn't have enough furniture yet. So please bear with me, and I'll improve the sound when I record from Ocean Shores in the future. All right. Hello, and welcome to The Deal with Animals. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Would you please introduce yourself and share your pronouns? I am Laura Monaco Torelli, and my pronouns are she and her. What is cooperative care? That's an excellent question. And I have found over the years that that question alone can send individuals into a bit of a rabbit hole, or maybe that might open up Pandora's box because what cooperative care means to one individual might reveal itself in different ways to others. So I just go back to what one of my first training mentors, Ken Ramirez, shares that every interaction that we have with our animals is cooperative care. Um, And then I just tag on the back end of that, that um, for me, cooperative care isn't like a specialty behavior. It's back to what Ken shares. It's like an everyday behavior, every interaction that we have with our, with our learners. Right. That makes sense because if you don't have cooperation when you guys are living together, then yeah, that's not very much fun. You, you and I actually have something in common. You come from a animal, more of a wildlife, uh, wild animal background than working directly with dogs. Uh, I as well worked at zoos for a, a sh- much shorter period of time than you did. Um, so why did you move on to dogs? Oh, good question. Um, I fell into dogs when I accepted a job at Brookfield Zoo. And in the department that I was in, we had rescue dogs that were involved in the programs, in the sheep herding demonstrations, um, in our in our outreach programs. Dogs were part of our animal ambassador programs. So it was a wonderful mix in one day to go from primates to reptiles, amphibians, um, you know, equines <laughs> to, you know, birds of prey. And then, oh, now it's time to go work with the dogs. And so that was the first time in a zoo and aquarium atmosphere that I worked directly with dogs. Uh, Prior to that, at the time, the Shedd Aquarium did not have the dog program yet. So I was there 
when the Oceanarium first opened. So I got, uh, Ken hired me as a young pup. I was still in college. But from 1991 to 2000 at Shedd Aquarium, the dog program wasn't there yet. And then when I left Shedd to go to San Diego Zoo, other departments had dogs in their programs. Um, but the department that I was in, we didn't. So it was under the zoo and aquarium community umbrella. And, you know, who knew <laughs> that it was like, just fascinated by canine behavior um, and the laws of learning and putting the behavior science principles into practice with all species in our department. And there, and there were dogs. We had yeah. four beautiful dogs. Yeah, that is excellent. It's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because animals learn the same way. My experience was that when I was training a tiger, it was really very, the, it was no different than training a dog in a lot of ways. You know, you're, you're basically using the same laws of learning. You're using the same principles. There are, you know, motivational questions that you have to answer. But overall, it's a very similar experience. Um, did you find that also to be the case? Or is there anything you took from your training um, larger animals and, and more wild animals than dogs to training dogs? Um, I learned quickly that when I started to work with dogs, helping private dog owners, a big adjustment for me was getting used to coming from a zoo and aquarium community where we really have a very controlled atmosphere for like, you know, who's the point trainer, who's the backup trainer, what are you cleared um, to train, you know, what are your interactions with the animals that you feel safe to interact with them with. So there's a very clear you know, check off clearing process. And so then I went with private dog owners and maybe I had an hour with them per week. So I had like pretty minimal, um, what I felt was influence at the time. Like when I first started working with dog owners coming up, goodness, coming up on 20 years now that I started working with private dog owners, um, it was a big adjustment for me because I was used to the consistency and what are you cleared to do and really knowing your animal, you know? So, you know, yes, beluga whales have species specific um, behaviors and, you know, their biology and where, you know, where you would find them in the wild and how they interact with the wild and what their food items are and all these different things that we would look at with beluga whales and then we shift it to working with private dog owners and there's so much that we can't control. And I don't mean control in an inhibitory way. It's just the, the consistency gets watered down because maybe the private dog owner has a pet sitter and then a dog walker and then they bring the dog to daycare. And then, you know, then the neighbors come over every day. So the dog owners would maybe get increasingly potentially frustrated by the lack of uh, progress with the training goals because there were more people, you know, in the dog's environment and the dogs are learning from, you know, these, whether it's a distant or immediate antecedent, and then the consequences from all these different players and all these different stimuli. And I was like, well, you know, and that was, it, it was, and it is such a learning curve for me to this day is all of the caregivers that are involved in, in this dog's life. And then learning how to support the client and understanding the journey, you know, and yeah. So I think that was a really long answer to a great question. <laughs> now it's, it's true, isn't it? Cause you get into that situation, you really have to adjust expectations, I think are, is a really important thing to be able to do with your client, but also your own expectations on, you know, what your client can practically do because Real life is really different than a, a zoo and training environment where everything is really regimented. And um, yeah, you'll ask somebody to do something and they'll just look at you like, that is not going to happen. That just isn't part of yeah. how our life is going to be able to work. And you have to yeah. work with that. Well, and I think for us too, it, coming from a zoo and aquarium environment, and even now, you know, I still feel lucky to get to work with wildlife rescue. It, it has to be so that we, there are some serious standard operating procedures that are in play to keep us safe, to keep the animals safe. These are wild animals. Um, some of them might be, 
not, you know, might not be large. Like if I'm working with like a black lemur, you know, they're little, but they're still a wild animal. And so, you know, you and I come from this fluency factor, so to speak, of this slow process of getting to learn the animal's environment and shadowing an experienced trainer and shadowing the run and seeing how, you know, this is the feeding schedule. This is the cleaning schedule. You know, um, are there primate politics that we need to look at? Is this breeding season? And there's all these little neat nuggets that come into how the day is run. And then coming over and working with dogs, you know, if I have someone reach out to me and let's say their dog does have a bite history with dogs or people, um, it's always on my radar, like safety first, safety first, you know, safety protocol. Um, but maybe for some newer uh, trainers that are looking to come into the dog community, you know, this is why having like great resources such as, you know, um, Michael Shikashio's Aggression and Dogs online course and the great community of trainers that he's bringing into the conference to help support dog owners where, you know, they're, they're not professional trainers. They might not be educated in the nuance of canine communication where, you know, this this particular stimulus or these stimuli are what set the dog into its threshold and the dog might be able to handle it, right? I'm doing quote unquote right now, but then something just pushes the dog over the edge and you and I might watch that and go, oh, you know, I think I could really identify what what was stressful for the dog, but for the average dog owner, they might word to you and I, I, I didn't see it coming. The bite came out of nowhere, uh, you know, and that's where what you said earlier is so spot on where we remain flexible to adjust our criteria and our expectations for what's happening second to second in our dialogue with that private dog owner, because at that moment they are really struggling. Dog is really struggling. And we're like, Oh, spinning plates quickly. But on the outside, we're hopefully making it look like, Oh, I have a plan. And on the inside, we're like, Oh, you know, switch gears, switch gears. (laughs) Like, whoa, what is happening here? You know? Yeah. You throw in a curveball in the middle of a training session. Oh, the dog is not doing what I expected it to do. And, or the, or the, you know, the owners are telling me that this isn't going to be possible for them. And you have to come up with something completely different. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if I may share, and I don't think I, I have this video on deck for the, for my aggression and dogs presentation, because it just happened today. And my, and my presentation is submitted. But um, I've been working with a client team uh, this morning here. I live in downtown Chicago. So when I say north side, those that are familiar with Chicago will know, like up on the north side, um, they have a young dog who is just smack dab in the middle of his adolescence. He's showing what you and I would identify as pretty normal adolescent behavior in the realm of regression and learning. He's um, you know, showing again, this is a big label, but more fear related behavior is identified by the owners, you know, so I don't mind a label. Just tell me what it looks like to you. So if you say your dog looks fearful, can you describe to me what fearful looks like? And then I understand what, you know, what fearful looks like. So we ran some baseline video. This dog does not have a bite history to people, but we ran some baseline video and the dog literally sees them go pick up the harness and he runs and hides. He runs across the house and hides. So I was like, well, that's really, you know, that's really interesting. You know, so I got baseline video of the owners showing me what was a very clear descriptive behavior from the dog avoidance as its coping strategy. And so then I said, you know, um, well, you know, uh, if you're comfortable touching my phone, um, you know, I already hit record, just aim it at me and your dog. I'm going to narrate out loud what I'm doing. I text it to them while I'm there. So they have their homework. They have a video library. And there were a couple of quick points where I said, I'm reinforcing your dog for backing away. I'm literally throwing your dog a treat when he backs away. So him backing away and him getting space from me was hopefully already a, a functional reinforcer for him. But why not add food to it? Why not say good choice? I'm so glad that you backed away. Good for you. Here's food. That was, you know, all the added dialogue. But for, you know, for the dog, I'm like, here's cheese. And as the videos, as the video reel was going and we were doing short sessions, then we were able to get to the point where the dog, you know, would stay and let me like, you know, put the top of the harness over its head, give a treat, take it off, give a treat. Then the owners were able to do it. And one of the questions I like to ask my client teams at least once hopefully once within our hour together is, 
you know, while we're on a break, do you have any thoughts or feedback as to how any new or helpful takeaways from you so far in our time together? And um, one of the partners said, I never thought about giving my dog a treat for when he backs away. Because I'm thinking, don't back away. I don't want you to back away. Why are you backing away? And, you know, I'm just scratching on a very, you know, I'm kind of on the tip of the iceberg on this one because, you know, people might listen to this and say, wait, no, what? You're, you know, you're saying to reinforce a dog for backing away. And I'm going to get into that at the Aggression and Dogs um, Conference a bit more. But that was a really neat dialogue for me to see a very clear contingency of the antecedent was the owner going, grab the leash. And the dog's name is Toots. He's so cute. Toots was like, nope. And like, just ran to the other side of the house. So that by the time I left, we would walk into the mudroom and he would come in and watch us grab the leash and be like, oh, that means food. Now I'm simplifying the process, but that was kind of like being on, um, I think of how Dr. Friedman describes it. It's like playing tennis. You know, we're on the balls of our feet to see what information someone is going to fly back our way with the ball across the net. Like, which yeah. way are you going to go with this? And I was definitely like, okay, well, you know, I don't want him to learn that backing away wasn't effective. So now he's going to growl or try to air snap. And it was a lot. There was a lot going on there. So thank you. I didn't mean to digress. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. I love the example because you're right. It is really surprising for a lot of people to hear that you would reward the behavior that initially the owners are saying, this is the problem behavior, right? This is what we don't want. And you reward that. But you, if I'm understanding correctly, you are working with more of a association style learning, having the dog associate, you know, the, the harness that he obviously does not like because of everything that it means potentially with, you know, something he does like. So you're not saying I'm going to punish you for backing away. I'm not going to try to chase you around the house and make this worse. I'm just going to say, great, you chose something. You're showing me behavior. Here's a treat. I happen to have this harness too. You know, this is good. We're having a conversation now instead of you just running for your life. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, run for your life. And even too, it's like when we look at that dialogue, um, you know, sometimes when I consult for vet clinics and I say, you know, when you walk in the exam room and that dog hides under the chair, um, it might be worth considering that you then back away more from the dog. Like you reinforce the dog for hiding under the chair by you backing away from the dog even more. Like you give the dog more space versus the, you know, some might approach and kneel down and go, it's okay. It's okay. And now the dog is under the chair trembling and now it's escalating versus, oh, you know, kind of like um, if you and I are in a conversation with someone and they get right in our personal bubble, like they're right in it. And we might kind of shimmy back a little bit. We might like lean back. And if they lean back even more from us, I'm like, nice job. You are reading my body language that I need a bit more space from you. I'm still with you. I'm still in this dialogue. I'm still, I know I'm still enjoying my conversation, but you're a little too close. <laughs> so if I back away and then you take a step back, I'm in, I'm in. Let's just, you know, let's keep talking. So again, I don't mean to simplify, you know, simplify it, but it's, it's neat what we learn, isn't it? It's, it, it's neat what these dogs teach us. Yeah. And you have to be there to listen, don't you? Because it really, it's mind blowing what you're saying right now. And I think it will be for a lot of people because it, it just seems so counterintuitive because everybody I know would definitely approach the dog under the chair. You know, they, they might give it a minute. They might see if he, you know, they might, they might back off a little bit, but it would be more out of like, let's see if the dog calms down, not in a conversational way. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And again, you know, it always, it always depends. You know, there's, um, I have big boys, I have Ridgebacks and if they could get in our lap under conditions where they might be like, I'm a little unsure, I think they would. I think we'd have like a hundred pounds of hound here. Um, but even for some, uh, you know, and I'd love to hear your feedback on this too, where, um, you know, I've seen other client teams where the dog is jumping more on the owner when company comes in, or the dog is jumping more on the owner during a walk when they maybe see a dog or person that they've associated maybe a bit of an aversive um, history with or a punishing history with. And for some dogs, height seeking is a way of seeking comfort and is a way of seeking safety. Like I'm going to try to get higher 
And for the maybe some of the dog owners that you and I help support, they might have been coached through previous opportunities to be like, well, you know, don't let the dog jump on you. He's being dominant or difficult or, you know, that's not good manners. And I'm like, well, I think the dog is really scared. So the dog is just trying to find a way out. And for the, for the dog, that just means I'm going to climb you like a tree and hope that you put your arms around me or just do something, you know? So it's, it's interesting. Some of the things that we'll see during vet exams or grooming, you know, the dogs are trying so hard to communicate and, you know, you, I, um, you, myself, and so many others in our community are just doing our best to help educate that, that snapshot moment, right? Like second by second by second by second. And it is, it's like, it's happening. It's like a, sometimes a train wreck movie real where you're like, okay, let's just stop this interaction. We need to just start over because this is not going in anyone's favor. Yeah. And having the confidence to stop something like that too, when you see something going really wrong rather than just going, well, let's see how it plays out. Being able to advocate for the dog in the moment, advocate for the animal in the moment and, and really do what's best for everybody also not, you know, not just, trying to make it work for the sake of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what are your thoughts about maybe there's pressure for us trainers to try to work through it because they've paid us money. We have, you know, what, 60 minutes with them. Maybe it's a group class or a private session. And then we might feel this self-imposed or culturally imposed, you know, who knows if that was even appropriate to say culturally, but like um, our community pressure sometimes like I have to give you everything I have in 60 minutes this isn't going in the direction that I want maybe you know maybe a trainer that's newer to our community might not have the problem solving skills yet to say let's put the brakes on because it's really going to benefit let's powwow on the situation and then let's come back at it from a different angle you know and hopefully that's why some of the guests are attending the conferences to learn from the speaker lineup about what each area of expertise everyone brings that deals with aggression <laughs> dogs, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard. And then you know, there are times we're done with that session and you just, you don't want to talk for a couple hours. We're, we're done. We're out of words. We're exhausted. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And, and you're right. It, it takes a lot to be able to, to tell people that we need to take a break. And because there is that pressure that you have to solve this right now. I mean, I definitely don't want to, you know, say anything negative about you know, our media friendly dog trainers, but there's, you know, there's those, there's dog training shows that make it feel like you can solve something in a 30 minute window, you know, and, yeah. and having that pressure to be that and to, to demonstrate that to people um, is really hard. Well, boy, you bring up another great point because it kind of segues into the social media sharing frenzy of material. And, you know, for those posts that I might follow or read on social media, just kind of, you know, under the radar, I just watch and listen to things. I'm always appreciative of a colleague that will preface the post with, this is a short clip into a bigger scope of what, you know, what we've been doing to help this dog and their family. And it's almost like a disclaimer, like, you know, don't, please don't watch this video and assume that this 60 seconds is a full representation of all the hard work that we've put into helping this team. And wow, you know, whenever I read that, that's so refreshing because it's, it's, it's transparent. It's honest, you know? this, this, this takes work. This isn't magic. You know, it, it, yeah. Yeah. It happens all the time, isn't it? Social media one way or the other too. If it looks really good, you need to be able to say it, this wasn't something we did in a very short period of time. And if it, if it's something you're asking for help on too, it can go the other way where you can tell people, look, please don't judge me or my clients based on this little snippet of video. You know, because it's something we're working on. You know, I feel like there's so many disclaimers you have to do. And I have fallen into that myself where I'll, I'll say something that's, you know, it, it's it's a tiny little snippet of a really complex issue. And I say one little thing and 
whoa, like the flame war start on, you know, yeah. why did you say that? That's not, the, that's not accurate. Well, 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 no, it's not, it's not exact. Like this is a very complicated situation. I was only just trying to right. like say, never mind. I just won't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hand, hand to sky. Truth be told. Sometimes when I craft like a short social media blip, I almost feel like my fingers hovering over, like, send it like because i'm like well let me reread it yeah do i need to edit it down (laughs) yeah is it yeah and then as soon as you hit send i'm almost like waiting for the tomatoes to come fly i'm like Mm -hmm. duck you know like oh i'm gonna hit send and step away from from my you know from social media access for a couple hours and be like i don't know how this is going to get perceived and i think that is such um such important considerations that you know anyone that you know, listens to this podcast, other podcasts, you know, other colleagues that you've spoken to, those that are joining us at the conference is, you know, sharing that with like, you know, with our clients. In fact, um, I said that with the dog owners family um, today, where I said, um, I know I may make this look easy, what I'm doing when it comes to harness training, but please keep in mind, my experience comes with navigating this dialogue and this conversation dog after dog after dog after dog for years and years and years. I couldn't show up at your job and do it fluently. So this is why we're taking video. This is why I'm narrating out what I'm doing. And this is why I'm narrating out loud what I'm seeing in your dog's body language. You know, so you have the videos for your homework tutorials, but don't be so hard on yourself to expect it to get to where we got it because this is what you hired me for. This is, this is my job. Um, and then you know where I'm at when you have questions. And it's almost like a disclaimer in that moment. Like, they're like, oh my God, my dog is brilliant. Ha-ha, do you want to move in with us? This is great, right? Like, can you move in? You know, and I'm like, well, here's the good news. We know it's possible. And, and I'm so glad that we at least got this far. But, you know, move at you and, move at you and your dog's pace. You know, and I always kind of try to leave with the way where they feel they don't feel like they have to get to this, you know, this yeah. higher level of fluency. Yeah. It's like, but this is what you and I do, right? So I'm glad that we got there, but now you're going to have some homework. <laughs> so. now you may have already answered this question now because uh, people do ask if they can move or if you can move in with them all the time. I know. Um, but what is the question that everybody asks? If you have one question that your clients just, you, you always get this question, or if somebody finds out you, what you do, what, what do they always ask you? What's the smartest animal I've ever worked with? Mm. When they know my full background. Like if, if a client says during the session, so I saw on your website, you know, that you work with exotic animals or, you know, that you come from a zoo and aquarium background or like wildlife rescue. I get that all the time. Like, are, you know, are, are penguins smarter than a sea otter? Are dolphins smarter than a beluga whale? And I'm like, well, if they're odontocetes, they're toothed whales. And I worked with toothed whales. I've never worked with a mysticete, which is a baleen whale. I don't say this out loud to someone who asked me because they're like, you completely lost me, Laura. But um, that, yeah, what is the smartest animal I've ever worked with? I get that all the time. Fun, fun one. Yeah. What is the question they should ask you? What are the what are some of the best lessons I've learned from animals? Mm. Yeah, and that one that one can go deep. I think it would be patience, planning. Um, you know, again, I hear having you know Ken on my shoulder. You know, know your animal, learn about the species. What's your plan before you start the training session? Um, we just chatted about this. I, I just taught a Karen Pryor Academy workshop earlier this week. I have a, um, I teach out of Chicago and then I fly to Phoenix. I, um, I teach out of, the, out of the Phoenix area as well. And one of the things that I was coaching our KPA student teams through was, you know, it's always good consideration to give yourself 15 or 30 seconds or one minute if you're running around and you're rushing and you're, you know, we're going from one thing to another. So for you and I, we're scrubbing buckets, we're scuba diving, we're cleaning algae, we're, you know, fixing stuff, 
you know, around the animals' habitats and we're running, right? It's like a sprint the moment we get on zoo grounds. And then we show up at the giraffes or we show up by the large cats or we, you know, show up with the sea otters and we're and learning early in my career. Well, now that you're here, let's have a pre-session meeting for just a couple of minutes, talk about who's going to work on what, do we have any medical concerns with the animals? Is anyone extra going to be present? You know, are there going to be any vet staff? Do we have any volunteers helping with the session? You know, it's kind of this, like this funnel moment where we're focusing in. Um, and I learned so much from Teresa McKeon from Tag Teach International, teaching on the human end of it as well, like bringing it into like a focus point moment where we just like, what, what am I about to do? So I don't end up bit or I don't put the animal in a position where if there's animal politics, like if there's multiple dogs in this learning environment, you know, if I'm going into a client's home and they have dog politic concerns or dog to cat, you know, concerns, that rushing, right? I have to rush across downtown Chicago. I have to find parking. I got to get to the client's house on time. Going, going, going and learning from the animal and listening from the lessons that I've learned from them is slowing down and really looking at these like snapshot moments of what they're offering from second to second. Uh, so many lessons learned from the animals. What would you say people should mm. ask you? What, what is your answer? Oh, turning it around on the host. That is not fair. <laughs> um, I, I would say that when you get to that conversation of what do you do and, and what, what have you been doing and all of that sort of thing, I, I'm not really sure where to start because there are so many parts to what I do that I don't, you know, I, I got to think about what do I want to talk about at the moment? Because you don't want to talk about the same thing every single time. So it, it, it changes, I think, depending on who you're talking to in the context of your situation. And, you know, everybody really wants to talk about their own experiences and, and so I, I like to ask people about their animals. I like to ask people about their relationships with their animals, because I think that's where I find the most insight into that person's personality and whether I'm going to like that person or not, or whether, you know, <laughs> it's not just whether they, they have pets because, you know, there's some great people who don't have pets, but you know, what is their interaction with animals in general? What are, what, what's a story they've got from their childhood or, or, um, you know, how reflective of a person are they? You know, I, I've met a lot of people now who, who have stories from their childhood where they were terrible with animals. I was one of them. Like, just not a good animal person. Loved animals, was not good with animals. And, you know, the, the reflection that comes from having those experiences and, and what you took from that and what you, how you grew into what you're doing now or, or your connection with animals now is... Uh, I think a really fascinating one. Oh, I really appreciate that. That's, that's nice. And it really ties in a personable aspect, you know, a nice connection with, with the dog owner at that moment, you know, that I'm really listening to what your interest is with, you know, your animals in your home or your background in history. I like that. Yeah. I mean, we always talk about how background is so important, isn't it? When we're, when we're doing uh, work with a client or with the dog, or with even knowing any animal's uh, background history is important, um, whether it's a, a sheep or a lion, you know, it, it, it's important to know that the species, but also know that particular animal's history to know, uh, you know, where they're coming from or to, to, to give yourself an idea of where they're coming from. And yeah. that's true for, for humans as well. Yeah. But yeah. Being, I think animal focused, we sometimes forget that the humans are also going to have all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, just a, a brief segue. One of my presentation topics is going to be, you know, has anyone asked the handlers or the caregivers, you know, mm -hmm. do you feel comfortable doing basket muzzle training? Do you feel comfortable giving your dog allergy injections? Do you feel comfortable trimming your dog's nails? Because yeah. a lot of my clients are like, I don't want to have to do the ear meds and I have to because it's been scripted and my vet said, but my dog is now growling at me and now I, I'm, I'm upset because our relationship seems to be detrimentally affected. And 
and my dog is growling at me. So I now can't do the ear drops. So the ear infection is going to get worse. And then am I a bad dog owner because I can't get the ear drops in? You know, so you bring up such a great bridge in the conversation about circling back and saying, do you feel comfortable doing what's asked of you to treat your dog or just to groom your dog? Like, why don't you want to groom your dog? You know, and then there's a whole host of answers that we might get there too. So, yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. The whole cooperative care is actually a really important subject because it's one of those things that we think of husbandry issues as just, oh, we'll deal with it when it comes up, you know, we'll deal with trimming the cat's claws or the medicine that the dog has to take. I, I just, my, my, both my elderly dogs passed away in the last couple of years and you know, the stuff that comes up, um, but there's that, those years towards the end where they're, you know, they're, health is declining. You know, what's going to happen. You're having those conversations. The big dog, 12 year old dog, he, he, he was, his, his spinal cord was degenerating. So he went from limping a little bit to basically not being able to use his hind end at all from the waist back, um, you know, over about a year and a half. So yeah, it was, it was, and, and you have to think of all of these things in which, okay, well, our, everything has to change for us, right? We have old dogs now, like he can't use the stairs anymore. All of these things you have to take into consideration, plus the meds and the quality of life and trying to figure out, you know, the balance of those things. And there was one thing that she said, you know, if he had, if he starts having trouble pooping, take a little Q-tip and rub it on the inside of his anus. And then that'll help, you know, release the poop. And I was just going, um, <laughs> I don't know about this. First of all, like, and second of all, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Feel about this? I, I just don't, I don't know. Um, you know, yeah. so you come into these, these moments, I think, and a lot, you know, we all go through something like this when we have the health of our, of our companion animals in mind where we're asked to do something we're just not comfortable with, whether it is an injection because we don't know we're doing it right, you know, or ear cleaning because the dog hates it or sticking a Q-tip in their anus to help them, you know, decide to poop so they don't poop in the house. Um, You know, you're faced with these things and you have to make decisions based on quality of life and based on what the dog is going to allow you to do. But wouldn't it be nice if, they were already so comfortable with this sort of thing that they just let you get on with it. How do you get to that point in, in cooperative care that you're kind of thrown a curveball like that, where you, you haven't practiced something, you haven't prepared them for something. And now you have to start doing it right away or else, you know, something they're not going to get their medication. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's part of the fun aspect of continuing education And, you know, now it's on so many more trainers radar, you know, just to weave in, you know, what we might label as vet procedures or grooming procedures um, into their everyday training demos. So it's not like husbandry is a specialty behavior. It's not like, well, if you want for your dog to get comfortable with you examining his nails on a hike it's, you know, more of my teaching platform is, okay, so while we take a break from teaching your dog to settle on a mat, why don't we go, you know, leash up your dog, you know, show me what it looks like to put the dog's clothes on and off. And let's go take a hike. And then when the dog is out and sniffing, and getting a nice break from, you know, training in their home, I'll say, you know, how often do you just stop on a walk and give your dog treats for standing in front of you? How often do you like look at your dog's you know, like the bottom of their foot pad and maybe just do like a couple second um, um, assessment, you know, of how it looks to make sure they didn't step in glass or they didn't, you know. So I kind of weave it into the dialogue like that where they're like, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm just throwing out for example, a client team might say, well, I mean, I only look at their foot if they start limping on a walk, right? I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? Mm why would I just stop and look at my dog's foot pad because they're not limping. So everything seems fine. So for, you know, the average dog owner putting on their radar, 
um, building a positive reinforcement history under, you know, stopping and, you know, gently lifting the foot pad, you know, uh, I kind of demonstrate it like, like bending a horse's hoof back, you know, like the dog is standing, but I gently go this way so I could see the bottom of the nails and the meaty foot pad. And I'm like, you know, if your dog is comfortable with it, let me show you, or I'll show them videos of me doing it with my boys, you know, so bring these um, if folks that listen, they follow me on social media. They know I do the hashtag like husbandry on hikes, husbandry at home. You know, how often do you just pick up and look at your dog's ear? Mm-hmm in the backyard and give them a click and treat or just a treat or look in your ear. Yay. Let's run around the backyard, you know, um, and play with toys, but you know, or we're on a hike and we're just enjoying a nice long sniff walk. And you know what? I'm just going to pretend like I saw something in your foot pad. Let me, you know, let me get that pebble out and mock up mm-hmm. removing something out of the foot pad. So your dog gets comfortable with the small approximations building up to something that may eventually be slightly painful, you know, Mm -hmm. hopefully not really painful, but, you know, getting something stuck up there could be moderately uncomfortable. So those are just kind of like, and then we go on with that, you know, how often do you think about doing this or that, you know, and it, it it might not be on a dog owner's radar, but I think it's valuable to show them what it looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the one that I was always terrible with was brushing teeth. And now that I have kids, I could totally do it for dogs. Like with, with kids, you know, it, it, I can't imagine how a dog would be worse. So (laughs) it should be, should be fine. Next time I, when when I'm finally ready for another dog, I'll have toothbrushing ready to go. (laughs) You'll have it down. You'll have it down. It'll just be part One of, of my routine. Um, I don't want to give it away, but um, so I won't share the details. But in my presentation, I do include a great short video of a colleague of mine who came up with a really creative st- strategy to do oral exams. Oh, and I'm going to leave it at that. That's my teaser. Awesome. That's my teaser. Awesome. Yeah. Well, what are you excited and, and who are you excited to hear? What subjects are you excited to, to hear about at the conference? Oh, all of it. All of it. I was looking at the speaker lineup the other day um, while I was going over my presentation notes and all of it. I mean, there are there's so much wealth that's going to come into the Aggression and Dogs Conference. And I think the diversity of the presentation topics, the knowledge base that is coming from the presentation lineup. You know, it's like it's like asking me to pick, you know, the most beautiful rose out of a perfect bouquet. I mean, it all of it. I'm looking forward to all of it. Um, I'm looking forward to learning just as much as I am sharing some information when I'm up. Did you, on did deck. you recognize all of the names that were coming up? Yes, I recognize the names, but I have not met in person. Okay. Um, many of the speakers. So, you know, I'm, I, I might be a little bit, um, you know, not shy, but like, oh my gosh, you know, they're so-and-so, yeah. you know, I'm not going to go over and bother them kind of a thing, but yeah. Yeah. So I'm super excited. Yeah. Oh man. I wish I was going to be there in person this year. It sounds like so much fun. I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of everyone who's going to get to be there, but uh, yeah, how fun. So let me ask you, if there was a book you could gift to all of the listeners, what would that be? Um, so many good ones, but I would suggest, uh, and many people probably have already heard of it, if not read it, is um, Crucial Conversations, uh, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. Uh, it's authored by Patterson and Granny and McMillan and Switzler. So okay. go to Amazon or Google. Um, and it's called Crucial Conversations. And then the subtitle is Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. Um, this book was recommended to me by another one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Susan Friedman. And um, I serve as a teaching assistant for her, for her Behavior Works um, course, and then also for her IAABC Principles and Practice course. Uh, so I'm one of the teaching assistants that reads through these students' homework. And what I really appreciate about um, mentoring and working for Dr. Friedman is she really 
fosters a continuing education for her teaching assistants. So she'll assign us books to read. And then we'll have like a book club, you know, like a virtual book club. Um, And it's this ongoing revolving door of, okay, so the next thing I'd like you to read, or here's an article I'd like you to read. And, you know, she sends it to all the teaching assistants, you know, and share your feedback, you know, on it. And then we have a dialogue. It's the Crucial Conversations has been really helpful for me ongoing. And I have it dog-eared, right? Pun intended. I have it dog-eared when working with, um, you know, dog owners and trying to remind myself to stay present and empathetic to what are their real concerns. Because I might, you know, work with five client teams that week and I'm like, oh, it's a more potty training. It's more jumping on guests, right? It's the same thing over and over and over. But for each person, them telling me what they're concerned about and the way that I respond is either going to foster a safe platform for for them to keep um, sharing really Mm -hmm. honest feedback about their relationship that they're having with the animal in their home. And if they say something to me and I almost kind of disregard it like is lighthearted. I don't want to come across as disingenuous or rude or not present to something that's really frustrating for them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, reading crucial conversations has been a way of trying to keep myself present for listening to what is being said to me mm-hmm. and kind of anchoring that, like really listening to what someone says, why it's important to them to say it to me. And then craft a way that I can respond that hopefully has that individual feeling like it was a beneficial moment for them mm-hmm. to share something, you know, that's hard. Yeah. It's hard to be present, you know, like you were saying earlier to be really present with a dog owner, you know, so, you know, tell me something about your past. Tell me why you love dogs. Tell me something, you know, and I think that's such an elegant way of, of like showing someone I'm really interested and in why you're invested in us working together. So that's my book. That puts, that's great. It I, I look forward to getting that one. So <laughs> would you share a formative childhood memory of your connection with animals? I do. I do. I've shared this maybe in previous podcasts, but for those that may have not listened to me and though um in the previous ones I shared. Um my grandma Maggie, um, at a very young age, I have a memory of her helping to rehab orphaned raccoons. And there are pictures and I have a few memories. I must have been five or six years of age visiting them, her and my grandpa when they still lived in Illinois before they moved out to uh to the Pacific Northwest. And I have memories of my grandma Maggie working with the local wildlife rescue, helping these orphan raccoons. And then they lived in a forested area. So this was like 1975, like this was back, you know, back in the day for some of our listeners. And um, I have memories of just how careful how gentle she was with these like now I'm like I've worked with raccoons in the zoo in a cram environment and I'm like oh you know um like like any animal we need to be careful like I'd never bother a wild raccoon on my property but she was so she just cared so much that these that these orphan raccoons would make it um and that's that's a pretty early memory for me right off the bat she really taught um and fostered a love for animals and wildlife, yeah, I guess wildlife too. Yeah. So that's my formative memory. Where did she live in the Pacific Northwest, if I can ask? Uh, they were near Gig Harbor, or were you there? I'm in Issaquah. Yes, uh, is is oh. where our home base is. But uh, we're recording today from Ocean Shores. I want to take a moment and acknowledge the land I create this podcast on in Ocean Shores is the ancestral land of the Quinault Indian Nation, along with the Sioux, Cherokee, Iroquois, Ho, Chinook, and Chehalis peoples. Um, so if you know Gig Harbor area, you probably know Ocean Shores because it's kind of sort of the same direction. Wow. Wow. No, I'm not familiar with that area, but they, they no. loved it up there. That's where they retired. It was so beautiful. It is beautiful up here. It's a, it's a wonderful, yeah, yeah. let me know when you want to come visit. 
Uh, uh, anytime. Out to the beach. <laughs> yeah, or and anytime you're, you know, whichever. Any, any, anytime I'm gesturing because downtown Chicago is like two miles that way. Like uh-huh. that way is downtown Chicago. So, um, but yeah, I, I give, you know, I, I think about my grandma Maggie all the time and, and, uh, you know, there's just the pictures and she was just so, you could just see how much she really cared about seeing that, mm-hmm. that little raccoon make it, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was so young. I don't know what the release looked like and what the follow-up was, or I know, I don't remember all the details, but I remember when we would go visit them, she'd be like, okay, like, don't go in there and touch them. But you know, these are the ones that we're working with now. And um, they were so sweet. And she would not, she would not kill a spider in the house. She would always put it in a cup and put a piece of paper and then she'd bring it outside and let it. I was just thinking about her this morning because we had, we had a spider in our bathroom and mm-hmm. I'm brushing my teeth and I'm just watching a little, it was a tiny little spider. I'm just watching him walk up the wall. And I was like, you go little spider. Like uh, you're not hurting anyone. No. And you know what? If my cats find you, then sorry. <laughs> but, you know, like, you know yeah. I'm just brushing my teeth and I was like, Oh, hi grandma Maggie. I'm going to leave that little spider alone. He's maybe going to help get rid of other bugs in the house. I don't know. You know, yeah. so, well, I, I've, I've got to the point where instead of just, instead of trying to rescue the spider and put it outside, um, I'm trying to get my, my, I have two young girls and, you know, I was terrified of spiders when I was little and, and again, not so great with animals. So I'm, I'm very much trying to foster much more of a, a, um, understanding and compassion towards our animal others. And so we've started naming the spiders in the house so that they, they live there. They're our roommates. And Lewis lives in my closet. Um, Marius uh, ran across the floor downstairs and the cat did find Marius. Um, but I think yeah. I was able to rescue him. Uh, don't know how, how well that worked. But, you know, I find that naming them makes the girls a lot less uh, concerned about having them in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I don't know if that's going to helpful to anybody listening, but maybe. Yeah. Well, I think about uh, I think about the scene in Finding Nemo where you've got Bruce the shark and they're like fish are friends, and I have you know um, some training colleagues that um, um, focus on working with um, insects. You know, mm-hmm. so they will go on and on about all different types of insects and well, you don't want to kill that insect because that insect's benefit in the environment is this. You know, mm-hmm. so that's been another perk of working in you know in in a zoo and aquarium environment. Um, it's true story. When I started at San Diego zoo, um, I don't remember in the interview, uh, tarantula coming up. So, um, I was learning one run in the area that I was in and the area that I was in, there were tarantulas and they were brought out, not brought out, out, but they were, Mm -hmm. um, brought out in their terrarium for public demonstrations to educate the people about tarantulas and how they, work um you know with i'm gonna say like aquaponics but you know they're you know all fluid and um we went over there and they said okay so and they're like putting on these these gloves these like i don't know like latex gloves and they're reaching in there and they're like picking up this piece of bark but there's a tarantula on it and they're like so you know so why don't you put your gloves on and we're going to introduce you to how we shift them from this habitat to this habitat and i i have a distinct memory i'm like could we just go back to the tree kangaroos like you're you're kidding right like you're kidding like I, i'm really reaching in there with the tarantula like they were so good they were so patient with me but i i froze and i'm like i'm perfectly fine with the primates i'm perfectly fine with the red pandas and all these other beautiful animals never exposed to this and it was you know it was like a learning opportunity right yeah. you're gonna learn about tarantulas welcome to our department <laughs> like it's not optional um And then I would never say I'd have a tarantula in my home and our cats would probably terrorize it like through the terrarium. But, you know, that was, that, that was a moment like, you know, insects serve a purpose. They're probably going to outlive us far longer, (laughs) you know, um, as a species and, you know, what, what's their function in the environment and what do they help with? And so whenever I see them in my garden, I'm like, you do you and I'll do me. So if you don't come on me, then I won't come to you. (laughs) Yes. Who would have guessed that you and I are talking about insects? Right? Yeah. I love how the podcast works. It's so funny because 
I, I always, the, as, as much as spiders freaked me out when I was little, and they still freak me out a little bit, tarantulas oh. are just like fuzzy, you know, they're like fuzzy little guys with eight legs. They're Oh, they're so, they're, they're really beautiful. Like when you get a close up look at them. And I'm thinking too, um, uh, when I worked in, at one of the zoos, we also had like guinea pig and hamsters, you know, for the, uh, for the animal ambassador programs too. And mm -hmm. just thinking like, you know, just, which I think stems back to what is husbandry, you know, things mm -hmm. like, you know, picking up, like even approaching their little habitat, like that, that's a cue for them. So do they start to get more animated do they run and hide you know or is our approach mean you're going to get little pieces of carrot you know and so think about these you know tiny little mammals mm -hmm. you know and the average home that you know there's maybe a lot of kids and they don't understand you need to be gentle with the hamster and they keep picking up and putting down its habitat and you know kind of a lot of um jarring mm -hmm. stimulus or, or stimuli in this little hamster's mm -hmm. environment that's husbandry, right? We're, we're moving yeah. them from one point to another. And then we start to look on the bigger scope of larger mammals, you know, like dogs, you know, you have your itty bitty little breeds and your larger breeds, you know, they both have a lot of teeth in their mouth, they could still deliver a bite. But what's happening in the husbandry procedure that's setting it into what we would describe as not going in our favor or not going mm -hmm. in the animal's favor. So we have something to learn from our little insects or hamster friends. <laughs> Definitely do. If that's not a segue into the last question, I don't know what it is. Well, what do you think is the deal with animals? I hope I don't get emotional saying this answer. Um, I think at times as a human species, we could do a better job of helping to preserve and conserve their environment. I think the deal with animals is if, we're not careful. We're going to continue to see more species become threatened and endangered or extinct. Mm -hmm. um, I think the deal with the animals is, you know, Mother Nature, this beautiful earth that we only get one trip around the sun on, right? Um, or one, you know, we get one chance in our lifetime as an individual human. I think the deal with the animals is what are we going to learn from these other beautiful living organisms on this planet? Because this planet isn't for us as humans. We're living alongside these animals. And I think the deal that we're giving animals um, needs closer examination. So I wasn't expecting that question. Um, I know you sent me the questions ahead of time, but I, I forgot that one. And I might've gotten a little deep there. So, so uh didn't mean Not to go deep on the listeners, but you know, there's, there's, uh, yeah, you know, every time I get to, you know, work with one of the raptors or work with one of the rescue animals, or I get to work with a new dog team or, um, you know, any animal, it's like, I can't believe I get this opportunity to be with you. Like you are an amazing mm. living being and I hope I take something away from it. I hope I'm present enough to, you know, learn about your species, to learn about you as an individual um, and then come away with it, uh, you know, with better knowledge and maybe more empathy. Mm. I think I'll stop my answer there. Thank you so much. And I thank you for spending the time with me to chat a little bit about, you know, the conference and about yourself. It's been great to get to know you. Oh, well, same here. It's been great to get to know you. And um, I hope I get to connect with you in person someday. So thank you for inviting. That was Laura Monaco Torelli. You can connect with Laura at lauramonacotorelli.com, westloopvet.com, and Animal Behavior Training Concepts on Facebook. Links in the show notes. You can also check her out at the Aggression and Dogs Conference 2022, September 30th through October 2nd. If you enjoyed this show and have any questions or comments about this episode or about the podcast in general, go to thedealwithanimals.com. Leave me a message. I will always read them. 
This is also a great place to go if you're interested in being a guest or have an idea for a series or episode. And don't forget to follow and review wherever you listen to your podcast, as it helps us become more visible to other listeners. The Deal with Animals was produced by me, your host, Marika S. Bell, and theme music was composed by Kai Stranskoff. Until next time, what do you think is the deal with animals? The Deal with Animals is part of the IROAR Animal Podcast Network. So what do you think is the deal with animals? <laughs>